Thank you for downloading the sermon podcast of Calvary Chapel, Mercer County. Enjoy the message. everybody. Chiefs? Really? 49ers? Two of you. (laughs) So all you chief people, that's who you want or that's who you think's going to win? A little bit of both. Wow, look at you people. That's nice. What'd you say? It must be Andy Reid. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Uh, We are in Mark chapter 9 this morning. Mark chapter 9 is where we are. This is actually going to be part of a two-part message, uh, which I've entitled Rethinking Greatness. Uh, And so today we're going to look at a a couple of attributes that Jesus points to that says, you know, a truly great person in the kingdom of God, these are the things you're going to see in that person's life. And we'll look at two of them, and then next time we come together, we'll We'll look at the uh, additional three or so. Um, so let me pray for us. Father, what uh, I think every one of us in this room recognizes our tendency to define greatness uh, in a way that is different um, from how you might define and how you do define greatness. And Lord, uh, our tendency is to move off in a direction uh, that is contrary really to yours. It's really just sort of our natural propensity. And so, Lord, we want to come and we want to sit under your word. We want to bring ourselves under your word. We want our thinking, Lord, the attitude of our hearts to be refined and shaped and molded more into what you would have it to be, into what you would have it to be. And so, Lord, we do ask for your blessing on your word this morning, Lord, that you would accomplish its purposes in our lives, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to pick up today in verse 30 of uh, Mark chapter 9, and I will remind you of a couple things because I think the context of things is important. Mark chapter 9 essentially begins with that mountaintop experience. It begins with Jesus taking a few of his disciples away, going up on top of what we think is Mount Hermon uh, there, and being transfigured right there in front of them, revealing his true glory right there in front of them. That is immediately followed by coming from the mountaintop and going back down into the valley, which we feel so oftentimes happens with us. Sometimes we're afraid to have a mountaintop experience because we know there's a valley uh, coming shortly thereafter. And, and that was the experience of Jesus and those disciples. As they come down into the valley and they find the scribes are debating with the disciples and a boy with a demon and a father crying out for help and them not able to help and all of these things, those difficulties that so oftentimes come when we enter into the valley. Well, we looked at that. We spent some time with that. And what certainly seems to be the case that we've been observing here is Jesus' intentional effort to get away from the crowds and to get alone with his disciples. We've been looking at it. It's, It's been now about eight or nine months that he's been trying to do that, trying to kind of just purposefully avoid the places where the crowds would be, to make his way to areas where primarily Gentiles live in somewhat distant lands that people didn't just sort of go back and forth to because maybe they wouldn't be noticed there. Because Jesus had moved from sort of this public teaching 
to a private, I want to explain some things specifically to my disciples here. And as we look at Mark chapter 9, verse 25, uh, this was earlier, it says, Now when Jesus saw that a crowd came running to him, he rebuked the unclean spirit. Remember, that's a story coming down off the mountain, the, the boy with the unclean spirit. Jesus sees the crowd. He rebukes the spirit. He says, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of the boy and never enter into him again. It's almost like Jesus sees the crowd and he wants to get out of there as quickly as he can. So he heals the boy and then they are going to you know, take off uh, from there. Because as I'm, I've been saying, Jesus is focused in on what we read in one of the other gospels. Uh, he's focused in on his departure. And so he doesn't want to be around the crowds. He doesn't want to be some kind of miracle worker uh, that will attract the crowds. Look at verse 30, because I think it confirms what I'm suggesting here. This is right after the event of the demon-possessed boy. And starting in 30, it says, Now they went on from there, they passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know that he was entering into the Galilee. That's the area that he grew up and did so much of his ministry uh, once he hit that age of ministry, around 30 or so. And so he goes to Galilee, he doesn't want anyone to know, for he was teaching the disciples and saying to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. But they did not understand the saying and they were afraid to ask him. Another place, in, I think it's Matthew, it says uh, these things were hidden from them. They just couldn't get it. Now flip back in your Bibles to chapter 8. And look at verse 31. There, in 831, we read, And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things. Notice, he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. Now, that's four verses after Jesus had asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And the disciples said, Well, you're the Messiah. And they all, Peter said, and they all agreed. Well, here now, there's, this is the definite transition in Jesus's ministry. We are, that point is about uh, 14 months, we'll just say. I'm just going to approximate there. It's a little over a year until Jesus's crucifixion. And so in this last year of ministry, Jesus is really going to focus in on these things to prepare his disciples Isaiah the prophet says this, Isaiah 50, it says, but the Lord God helps me therefore. You should read Isaiah 50 in its entirety. It's uh, what we call a messianic prophecy. It speaks of the coming Messiah. And about halfway through that chapter, it says, but the Lord God helps me. Therefore, I have not been disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like a flint, like a stone, like a rock. And I know I shall not be put to shame. What did he set his face like a flint toward? Jerusalem. He set his face like a flint toward the cross, stone. He's not going to be changed. Nothing can come and mold him into something different. He's going to the cross, and he's seeking, for the most part, to travel unnoticed because his public ministry is now over. His ministry has become one primarily of, as a private ministry, and thus he'll say to his disciples, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they're going to kill him. And after three days, he will rise. Notice verse 32, but they still do not understand the saying. Now, that's hard for us to believe, isn't it? I mean, how much more clear could he be? But in, in their mind, they, it, it does say in Matthew that these things were hidden from them. 
But in their mind, there's a few things that are going on. One is they, they stop listening when he gets uh, you know, part of the way through because it just doesn't jive with what they know the, the Messiah is supposed to be. They know the Messiah is supposed to rule and to reign. And so they just sort of stop listening or they know that the Messiah is to rule and to reign. So how does this other stuff fit into that? Well, I don't know. It's too complicated, too hard. It makes my brain hurt. And so they stop thinking about it. But it says they just did not understand the saying. Notice the next phrase. And it says they were afraid to ask him. You ever been in that situation? You know, you just don't know. You, you don't understand. You're confused. And you're kind of looking around to see if nobody else knows. And only one person has the guts to say, I have no idea what you're talking about. And all the rest are like, you don't know, neither did I. You know, this kind of stuff here. And so they were afraid to ask him. They just couldn't process what Jesus was doing here. And in reality, we see as we study through the rest of the Gospels and into the book of Acts, they never really got the resurrection until after the resurrection. I was looking at some of the interactions regarding the resurrection this week, and I was reminded of that event in Luke chapter 24. And Luke 24, it's the first, we call it Easter morning. The, the women, they go to the tomb. They're going to prepare the body. It was sort of hastily put into that tomb uh, on Friday evening. They took the Sabbath off. They returned there Sunday morning at sunrise, essentially. That's why a lot of churches do sunrise services. Uh, and they get there, and they encounter these angels. As you can imagine, verse 5 of Luke 24, it says, And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men, that's the angels, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He's not here, but has risen. Now notice verse 6, he says, Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee during his teaching ministry that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men, be crucified, and on the third day rise? Ladies, what day is it? It's the third day. Remember how he told you? And it says, and then, well, it doesn't say then. It says, and they remembered his words. That's right. Resurrection. You see, they just, he had told them clearly, but they just didn't get it. They didn't seem to understand. Now, we're in hindsight. We look at it and you're like dummies. But the reality is in that situation, we wouldn't have gotten it either. Not just because it was hidden from them, but because it was just something they couldn't grasp. But again, they were too afraid to ask, which I think is kind of unfortunate. But it is what it is. They were too afraid to ask. Verse 33 goes on. And they came to Capernaum. And when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? Now, we don't know where they were when they encountered that demon-possessed kid. And they had that interaction and things like that. Uh, if they were coming from Mount Hermon, Caesarea Philippi, those things, they're moving in that direction. And then once they get to the Galilee region, one of the main villages they're going to hit first is Capernaum, which is on the northern shores of the Sea of Galilee. And so they get to this particular town, but they had been walking to get there. It could have been 50 miles, 30 miles, whatever it may be. And they'd been walking to get there. You can imagine uh, sort of this line of people, like one following the other, maybe two by two, that kind of thing. And some of the guys had been talking. I imagine they pull back a little. Jesus is a little bit up ahead of them. And they've been talking. And so Jesus gets to the house and he says, what is it you guys were discussing on the way? Notice it says they kept silent. And the reason they kept silent is because they knew they shouldn't be talking about what they were talking about. They were arguing with one another about who was the greatest. 
And this wasn't one of those arguments like, no, you're the greatest. No, you are the greatest. It was one of those, I'm the greatest. You? <laughs> you know, sort of things. And so Jesus says, what were you arguing about on the way? Cricket, cricket, cricket. No answer. And so Jesus sat down. He calls the 12. And he says to them, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and a servant of all. And Jesus took a child and he put him in the midst of them. And taking the child in his arms, he said to them, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. So they come to Capernaum and Jesus confronts the disciples. What were you guys talking about? Well, they know they shouldn't be talking about it. This is why they don't immediately give them an answer. If, if it was something they should be, we were talking about how to help the poor more or something, you know, and I'm like, yeah, it's great, you know, I'm glad you're strategizing uh, and stuff, but it's something they shouldn't be talking about, and so they keep silent. I find it interesting that, at least in our Bibles, you know, 10 verses earlier, Jesus is saying the Son of Man is going to go give his life on behalf of others, and now here we are 10 verses later, and they're debating which of them is the greatest, uh, when he clearly is the one, the greatest, and yet notice what it is, what's on his heart and on his mind. Jesus is headed to Jerusalem so that he can die for others. His disciples are arguing along the way which of them is greater than the others. And this is one of those conversations that you should not be having about yourself. You shouldn't enter into conversations about how great you are uh, and how you're greater than somebody else. This is a conversation that other people should be having about you, but you shouldn't be having it yourself. Every now and again, I, I flip through the news or whatever, and I find one of these sports talk shows. My wife is a big fan of sports talk shows, loves it. Uh, every now and again, we get in the car, and you know, a, a show is on the radio or something like that. And she's gracious and kind, and she doesn't say, turn this stupid stuff off initially. Uh, and then... After about two minutes, she's like, this is the dumbest. You know, these, these debates, these discussions are the stupidest things. And, and I'm like, you just don't understand. And I, I try to help her. She just doesn't understand. But every now and again, you watch a, a sports show on TV or whatever, and there's a group of people together, and they're discussing amongst themselves, they're debating amongst themselves who the greatest quarterback of all time. And this guy will take this position, this gal will take that position, and they'll argue that, oh, it was clearly Rodney Pete. Or, or something, you don't even know that name, do you? Uh, you know, it's clearly Joe Montana. No, 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 it's Brett Favre or whatever. And they'll debate it and they'll argue it. Imagine if they brought those people on and they argued their own case for themselves. What an annoying show that would be. No, I'm the greatest of all time. No, you're not. I'm the greatest of all time. It would be so annoying, you would flip it off. You'd turn it off. That's what these guys are doing here. They're arguing their own case for why they are the greatest of the disciples. There's a proverb, Proverbs 27. It says, let another praise you and not your own mouth, a stranger and not your own lips. Good, solid principle to apply to your life in any area of your life. Let another praise you and not your own mouth, a stranger and not your own lips. If you've ever been in a job interview, the interviewer will, might say something to you like, why are you the best person for this job? And you have to kind of sell yourself in that instance. And as a follower of Christ, it becomes such an awkward thing to do. Oh, I'm not the best person at all. 
I'm a knucklehead of a person. You don't want a guy like me. If you only knew, you know, these sorts of things. But you, you can't do that, so don't do that. Alrighty? And then I like to put, well, I think I, I think I care too much about others. You know, or some, you come up with some like praise statement, which sounds like a negative or whatever. It doesn't work. Everyone sees right through it. And so anyway, the proverb says, let another praise you and not your own mouth. Now, I would say this. I don't think it's necessarily wrong to want to be the greatest of the disciples. I think when you come to the end of your days, you would like to hear it said at your funeral, what a good brother in the Lord. What a sweet sister in the Lord. Look at the things that she did for the Lord, or he did for the Lord. I, I would hope that would be your goal. I would hope you'd want to have such a positive testimony of something said at, when you're departed here. But these guys are debating this thing about themselves. Let another praise you, and not your own lips. And I can't help but think that Jesus must have just sort of shook his head and rolled his eyes when he realized, or he learned, um, discovered, if you will, he's the Lord, uh, what it was that they were talking about. Because again, what's this come on the heels of? Besides Jesus saying he's going to go and die, it comes on the heels of them just failing in ministry, remember? They couldn't heal the demon-possessed boy, and now they're arguing how they're the greatest of disciples. Apparently not that good, you know, because you couldn't do something in that particular instance here. But what we see today is this, that the disciples are missing the true character of the kingdom of God. They're debating which of them is the greatest, and that's not at the heart of the ministry of God. And despite all that Jesus had been telling them regarding his being on mission, a mission that's of service and not being, a, being served, they, are, they keep thinking about ruling and reigning. Number two man, if you will, in Jesus's kingdom. And Jesus is essentially going to say to them, you're missing the whole point. It's ironic, the time that it comes, but it's also sad. In light of his saying, I'm going to go give my life on behalf of others, in light of him saying in another place, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, that they're having this particular debate. Verse 35, it says, And so he sat down, and he called the twelve, and he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all, and the servant of all. Now, in that day, almost the exact opposite of us. In that day, when the rabbi was ready to teach, he would make his way to the front of the room. He would sit down. Oftentimes, his congregation would be standing and listening. Not always, but oftentimes they would. But the, the rabbi would often sit. We sort of do the same thing. Please be seated. And the pastor's going to come up and stand, you know, and, and teach the message here. And so when Jesus sits down as this rabbi, he's sitting down so he can teach them. What were you guys talking about along the way? Cricket. Cricket, everybody sit down. All right, I'm going to teach a lesson here, he says. Now, notice he never mentions the specifics of the argument. I, I, I kind of appreciate that about the Lord. He doesn't tear into them. He doesn't say, I'll tell you what you're arguing about. You don't think I hear these things? I know what you're arguing about. Instead, what he does is he sits down, and he calmly begins, after he calls the 12, he calmly begins to give them a picture that will correct their thinking, correct the reason for their debate that they were having. He sits down. And the picture that he's going to create is a picture of what true greatness is 
in the kingdom. That's why I said I've entitled this Rethinking Greatness, because sometimes it's very, very different from what we think greatness is or what greatness is going to look like or what are the results of greatness going to be? How's that going to affect my particular life? Jesus says, if anyone would be first, he must be last and the servant of all. So do you think these guys were debating who would be the servant of all? No, no, no. I'm the one who's going to get up earlier and vacuum than anybody else. No, you're not. It's going to be me. They're not debating that. They're debating who's going to sit on the right side, who's going to sit on the left side. They're debating who's in charge when Jesus has to go away for a period of time, you know, on vacation or something like that. That's what they're debating. They're debating who's going to serve them. They're jockeying for position. And Jesus now shows them what would be required of them if they wanted to be the first of his disciples. Again, I don't think there's necessarily anything wrong with wanting to be the greatest of Jesus' disciples. Just make sure that your definition of great and his definition of great are one and the same with one another. The disciples have in their mind a picture of greatness that means others serve them. And they have in their mind a picture of greatness that meant they give orders and others are required to follow those particular orders. Jesus says, if anyone desires to be first, he must become the servant of all. He says, let's, let's all make sure we're on the same page here as to what greatness actually is. The one who will be most highly honored in God's kingdom is the one who sought no honor for him or herself here on the earth. The one who will be most highly honored in the kingdom of God is the one who seeks no honor for themselves, but instead lays down their lives so that others might benefit. That person, Jesus said, is the first in God's kingdom. So Jesus is going to show them this with a picture. Verse 38, or 6, excuse me, it says, He took a child, he put him in the midst of them, and he takes the child in his arm, and he says, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. He holds a little kid, a little guy, a little boy. I think it says it's a him somewhere. Um, so he holds this little boy here. Many of you, you're familiar, no doubt, the old Puritan saying, children are to be seen, not heard. Somebody said to be, they make them work. No, that's not it. That's a different one. <laughs> children are to be seen, it says, and not heard. Well, the Jewish people, as many people throughout history, some even today, believe pretty much the same thing about kids. All right? You're a necessary evil because we got to re, I'm not saying it. Other people said it, all right, because we have to replenish, you know, population or whatever. And when you become important, then we'll take notice of you, we'll listen to you. There are those that thought of children more as property than as individuals even. And if you think of a child, a child doesn't have prestige, do they? See, a person, if, if a person has prestige and they come into this room and you can get on their good side, some of that prestige might run off on you. What's a kid have? Nothing. They're cute. That's all they got going for him. No, just kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> Children don't have influence. You don't buddy up with a kid so they can help you get a job or something like that. Children aren't going to repay an act of kindness toward them. They're not going to owe you one. They got nothing to give you. And they're not going to repay you with some sort of favor when you're the one that's in need. And so when you serve a child... 
you do so with no thought of how this is going to subsequently bring benefit back to you, right? You serve them just to serve them. You're not, you don't have any ulterior motive here. You're not getting anything back. And so Jesus then, he sets this child in their midst, and in doing so, he's exhorting the disciples to receive people just as you would receive this particular child. And what he's doing is he's instructing them that greatness is in welcoming those that have no influence and those that lack in power. Jesus says, when you welcome people such as these, I take notice of that. When you live in such a way like that, that's what I take notice of. That's what I mark, Jesus is saying, as true greatness. The person who serves for no other reason but to serve. He says, when you welcome such as these, then I respond as if you did those very acts for me. Because in Jesus' heart and mind, those are the actions of the greatest of his disciples. Jesus is emphasizing here to these disciples who are arguing about greatness that an act of kindness shown in his name to those that are least esteemed and least renowned, that that's what true greatness is. And throughout the rest of this chapter, starting here, Jesus is going to point out five, I think it's five different uh, marks of a great disciple. And here is the first one. And so the first principle that he gives to us is this. Truly great disciples, if you're writing this down, it's a good one. Truly great disciples treat all people equally. Truly great disciples treat all people equally. Truly great disciples don't treat the rich better than they treat the poor. And they don't treat the poor better than they treat the rich, which we have seen. Truly great disciples don't treat smart people better than those that are less capable. They don't treat men better than women or the old better than the young or any of the vice versas of those particular things. Rather, a truly great disciple treats and interacts with others as if each person they are dealing with is Jesus Christ himself. You think you would treat Jesus differently than other people? You think you'd treat him as someone that is truly great? I've noticed this about myself is two people could do the same exact thing uh, in an interaction with me here. And if I have a great deal of respect for this person, I'll gladly look past what they've done. And if I have a lesser level of respect for that person here, I'll hold it against them. Do you do that? I'm the only one that does that? I get frustrated with someone I think less of, but I give the benefit of the doubt someone I think more of. A truly great disciple treats all people equally, as if they are treating Jesus himself. How differently we would act toward those we interact with if we treated all folks in this particular way. A truly great disciple treats everyone equally. Verse 38 goes on, and John said to him, teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. Truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink, because you belong to Christ, will by no means lose his reward. If you have a cup of water right now, go ahead and take a sip. Because <laughs> all of a sudden that made me thirsty as I thought about it. Now, notice the context here. 
Because it, it sort of seems like John saw a squirrel. You remember that movie, Squirrel? You know, and, and the, the, the head turned real quickly here. I don't think so. Because Jesus is talking about receiving a child. And then John interjects about someone he did not receive. Or we did not receive, I think. He throws all the rest of them under the bus as well. And they're like, shut up. He didn't know. You know, and yet John confesses, I would suggest to you, a recent failure. When he and the other disciples failed to receive someone. So he says, teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name. And we tried to stop him. Because he wasn't with us. And so if it is in the context of, you know, receive even a child. John says, oh, Lord, we didn't receive that guy the other day that we saw. If it's in that context, notice John's heart. John has a soft heart. John is applying the things that he is learning. John could have said, all right, I got it. You want us to be nice to kids. Great. And left it at that. But what John is doing is taking that principle that Jesus presented about receiving even the lowest in society, and he's applying it into his life where he didn't receive a particular fella, one who was not one of them. I appreciate that about John, soft-hearted John here. He gets and he applies this lesson because what John and the rest of the disciples, what they succumbed to is something that I think a lot of us, many times in the church, succumb to, and that's this idea of an us and a them mentality. See, I love you guys. You're my Calvary Chapel family. I, I keep my eye on those Baptists. Those Presbyterians, I'm not really sure about them, you see. You see where I'm going with that? There's this us and them mentality there. Oh, I love fellow Republicans. Democrats, I want to talk to you about some things. You see what I'm saying? It's an us and a them mentality. Americans, oh, yeah, we're the best. Those others that are out there. That what the disciples did here is they fell victim to this idea that just because others might do things differently from us, then that means that they should be condemned by us. Now, notice this guy. This man isn't teaching false doctrine. And so if he's running around teaching false doctrine, there comes a place where you got to intervene and say, hey, look, man, you're off the mark here. Let me explain things a little more clearly. I don't want to hear it from you. Okay, you need to go over there. Or there may be a place for that. This guy isn't like living in sin and then going out and telling people this message. And people are like, those two are incongruent. What are you doing here? This is a guy who his only fault happens to be he's not one of the 12 disciples. That seems to be his only fault here. And so the disciples decide, John confesses, that they, they told him to stop. Jesus essentially says, don't stop the guy. You want to encourage a guy that is doing that sort of thing. Jesus is saying something to this effect. He's saying, look, if this guy has enough faith to use my name to cast out demons, he's probably not going to go turn around and badmouth me afterwards. He says, so let him go on. Then notice Jesus says, for the one who is not against us is for us. That's Mark chapter 9, verse 40. Now, I want you to compare that. This is Matthew chapter 12, verse 30. I wish we could put them both up together. I don't know if we can do that. But Matthew 12, 30, it says, whoever is not with me is against me. And whoever does not gather with me scatters. Now, compare that. That seems to contradict what Mark 9.30. Can you put that or whatever it was? Mark 9.40 says. It seems to contradict it, doesn't it? Go back and look at these things in context. And in the Matthew chapter 12 passage, the issue there 
was one of a person that was in uh, active opposition to the person and the work of Jesus Christ. This man here is not that. This man here in Mark is a fellow seeking to do the work of Jesus. And so when you take those verses out of context, they almost seem to be contradicting one another. Keep them in their context, and it all makes sense here. And you have this fellow. Now, did he minister exactly as the disciples were ministering? I was thinking about this. We know he didn't because he was successful in delivering people of demons. They weren't. So there's a big difference here. But did he minister in the exact same way? He probably did not. But he was still advancing the cause of Jesus Christ. And Jesus takes notice of it. And Jesus now teaches us another important principle about true greatness in the kingdom of God. What it means to be a truly great disciple. And that is this. Be gracious when dealing with those that are different from you. Be gracious with those that are different from you. You do not have to be, I don't have to be the ministry police. I've done that. It's such a miserable thing to do. To scroll through Facebook, I don't like that Christian. I don't like that Christian. I don't like the way they wear their shirts. You know, look at that. I don't like that either here. It's so annoying. I just hate it. And I do it. And so Jesus is teaching me. I hope he's teaching us here the importance of saying, you know what? They're his kids. He'll correct them as he needs to correct them. I need to follow the Lord as the Lord directs me to follow the Lord through his word. I don't need to be the ministry police correcting everybody else so that they do it the way that I do it here. Those that are not against the biblical Jesus are thus for Jesus, even if they do things a little bit differently than the way that we might do it, that I might do it here. And so then the second principle of greatness in God's kingdom, seek to be magnanimous, humble, gracious toward others as much as you possibly can. Amen? Does that make sense? Seek to be so. You'll feel better about yourself in the long run too. Stop being so cranky. We can get cranky. I hate that word. Whenever I was cranky, my mom used to say, you're cranky. And then I was cranky because she said that word in that particular way. I don't want to be that anymore. All right, so here's a guy. He's delivering people from demon possession. The disciples think he's not with them, so they should stop. Now, notice Jesus goes on and he says, Truly I say, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Now, is giving a cup of water a big deal? Not really. That's a small little thing. Is delivering people of demons? Wow, that's pretty cool. That's pretty big. Yeah, certainly so. So Jesus is saying, the guy that's even just handing out a cup of water will go noticed. Same with this fellow up here that is ministering in this particular way. What should bind believers together is not that we go to the exact same church or that we hold all of the exact same doctrines. There are certainly uh, non-negotiable doctrines. We know that. I think we understand that. But there are plenty of other instances where you look at it and, you know, they, they come up with this conclusion here. That's cool. Do your thing. What binds us together is that little phrase there in verse 41 in the middle that says, because you belong to Christ. That's the cord that binds us together. There's a lot of Christians in Ewing, New Jersey, I imagine. There's about 35,000 residents in this town. Maybe it's closer to 40,000 that are now. I have to imagine there's probably two, three, four thousand Christians that follow Christ in our particular community. And I was thinking about this recently. 
that if there were some instance that calls us, I couldn't travel anymore in my vehicle. Or maybe there's no more gas around. I don't know what it calls it. No more gas. And so you would have to go to church where you could essentially walk to. I suspect a lot of you would stop coming to church here because it would take you like three days to get here or whatever. And you'd find a church that's a little bit closer to community. And what that would then mean for myself here in Ewing, of those 3,000 people that I'm just pulling a number out of a hat here, of those 3,000, they would become the people I begin fellowshipping with. And maybe they do things a little bit differently now than the way I do things. I'd have to get over it, wouldn't I? Or I'd have no fellowship. I'd have to get over it pretty quickly. As I begin to interact with some other brothers and sisters, the most important thing is because you belong to Christ, the passage says there. And I, in so many ways, the true measure of a person's faith is the type of person that it produces. It's not that they can pass their doctrine test. And man, they get them all right, and you should read their essays. They're perfect. We should publish them. That's important. There's a place for that. There's a place for doctrine in our lives and how it's supposed to impact our lives. But too often, people that become the ministry police and they got all the doctrine right, nobody wants to be around them, Christians or unchristian, because they're kind of jerky, right? Amen? You know those people. If you don't know those people, you may be those people. I'm just kidding. <laughs> the true measure of a person's faith is the kind of person that it produces. And so Jesus, prior to being interrupted by John, John, uh, Jesus, we, we told this guy to stop. Just before that, he was talking about what true greatness is and how serving is the mark of true greatness. Here, I think he continues now, he gets past John's question, and he continues, and he says that humble service does not go unnoticed. He says, I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. That small little thing that nobody even notices. And likely, if you didn't do it, it probably wouldn't have changed the situation. The guy, the gal would have been thirsty, but they would have kind of moved on here. And so you just think of how simple an act of kindness as giving someone a cup of water to drink is. Jesus said, even that does not go unnoticed. A task as minor as that. No small task will go unrewarded if done for, for the Lord. Any kindness shown in Christ's name does not go unnoticed. Now, there's often this fear. We want to be great, right? Everybody wants to be great. You want to be number one at work, all those kinds of things. You want to be right up there. And sometimes there's this fear that if we don't look out for number one, nobody else will. We succumb sometimes to this thinking that unless we're clawing our way to the top and pushing out everybody else on the way to get to the top, then what's going to happen is we're going to fall down and we're going to become the doormat for everyone else. And so we're, we're reluctant to serve other people unless, well, who's serving me? Make sure people are serving me before I agree to start serving other people here. Jesus says this. He says, trust me. Trust me. You can live in this countercultural way, and even if nobody else notices the acts of kindness that you're doing, I see them, and I will reward them accordingly. And so this second idea then, uh, almost really this third idea touching in, it comes from the second one, but treating others with kindness, being magnanimous toward others, dealing with them in humility, 
and then serving. Serving other people as unto the Lord. Amen? So, no, that's all I got? No, this is good stuff. Two things you can now, you can leave here and you can apply into your walk. Questions that you can begin to ask yourself as you go forward from here. You can jot them down now, think about them, meditate on them tomorrow, ask the Lord to bring these things to mind throughout your day, throughout this particular week. Number one is this, do I treat others equally? Do I treat others equally? And then secondly, am I a, am I a humble, kind, and gracious person toward others? Two simple things you can begin asking yourself. And then ask God, Lord, as I deal with people, when I'm not, show me that. When I have an opportunity to, show me that. And it's as you become aware of it, that you begin to submit it to the Lord in prayer, that God begins to change you. Amen? And that's what we want, right? We don't want to look in a mirror, see, oh my gosh, look at myself, I'm a mess, and then go away unchanged. We want God to reveal we want to apply these things into our lives and by his Holy Spirit, have him change us so that we're more like him. Go Chiefs. <laughs> Father, we thank you for your goodness. Lord, I think of the way that Jesus uh, dealt with these disciples. What a, what a silly conversation to be having in your presence. Because the reality is all of them would come up short of your greatness anyway. Why debate the topic in your presence? And yet in your kindness, you just sort of had them pull up a seat, you pulled up a seat, and you began to explain to them the more excellent way. You began to define for them what true greatness is in the kingdom of God. And, and Lord, you've begun to do that today uh, as we've looked at just a couple of these things. And so, Lord, work on our hearts. Lord, we do not want to be a people that come, looks at your words, kind of, that was interesting, and then goes away unchanged. But we want to be a people that come into the light of your word, have, have your word reveal to us our areas of need and shortcoming, and then by the power of your Holy Spirit, begin that process of change and sanctification. And so, Lord, I pray that this would be an important week for each one of us in this room. Lord, that this would be a week that you did a really good work in the lives of each one of us in this room as we submit ourselves to you. Bless your word that it might bear much fruit, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks again for listening. If you'd like more information about the church, please visit ccmercer.com or come worship with us in Ewing, New Jersey on Sundays at 10 a.m.